it's become a trite statement to a certain extent, but it is the truth. Um, water is a right. Mm. And clean water is a right. And we've absolutely not set up our systems to, to give people that. Hello and welcome to On The Grid, Z-Prime's podcast about important issues regarding energy, cities, and much more. I'm your host, Ricky Murray, and today, I've got a water exclusive for you. We use water every day, everywhere. Yet in multiple parts of the world, providing clean and accessible water is still a major issue. Joining us on The Grid today is Shay Fabode, CEO of Varuna, and Lincoln Blevins, Executive Director of Sustainability and Energy Management at Stanford University. And y'all, we are swimming in conversations today. Aaron and I are taking a deep dive into the water utility industry to truly understand the inner workings of our water systems and how through creative partnerships and a shared common goal, we can truly transform the future state of water. So let's make a splash, y'all. It's time to get on the grid. Hello and welcome to On The Grid. I'm your host, Ricky Murray, and back on the grid with me this week is Z Prime's Senior Director of Research Programs, Aaron Otan. Aaron, you just came back from California. You're back in Austin. How are you been? Thanks, Ricky. It's great to be back on the pod. It's been a while since I've been here. Um, had a good trip to California, but glad to be back in Texas and glad to be talking with our two guests today, um, two of our favorite Z Prime partners. Definitely, definitely. Um, and for those just listening, Erin went on a road trip. If you want to follow her EV adventure, you could do a search on social media for hashtag EV adventure. Joining the podcast with us today, we have two very special guests, not just one. So it's a change up for our podcast. Joining us on the grid today is the CEO of Varuna, Shay Fabode. Shay, how are you? I am good, Ricky. Good to, good to be back with you guys. Yes, we're so happy to have you back. Um, also joining us is Lincoln Blevins, Executive Director of Sustainability and Energy Management at Stanford University. Lincoln, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Well, uh, in fact, we had an earthquake about 15 minutes ago. So it's just uh, par for the course here in the, in the Bay Area. Nice. And you're doing well, I presume. <laughs> we, and we are. We are. Thank you. Great, great. That's good. It's great to hear. So this week, we have something special for our listeners. We're taking a dive into our water and utility industry to really kind of understand those inner workings of our water systems. And we're excited to have you both on here to really share that story with us. So first, um, Lincoln, we'll toss it to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you're doing at Stanford. Uh, sure. I have been uh, lucky enough to be in the energy and water and sustainability industry now for almost 30 years and have seen it really transform uh, and really expand and start to truly become a, a valuable tool in the fight against climate change in particular. Um, so at Stanford, I a lot of those things come together. I'm in charge of energy and water and facility energy management and waste management and safety and emergency response and sustainability and resilience. And I try to bring all those things together, uh, both for 24 seven operations, but also really pushing the envelope in terms of innovation and making sustainability innovation real um, across our campus. Nice. That's very, so it's very important work, especially like you just discussed with, you know, natural disasters and things like that. Um, you know, emergency response is super important. Yep. Uh, so Shay, tell us a little bit about, about Varuna and the work that's being done at Varuna, a little bit about yourself. Give us a scope. Sounds good. Uh, thank you. Um, I'll start with, with Varuna and we like to say we, provide visibility, insights, and awareness to water systems so they can deliver clean water consistently. Um, and the way we do that is by tracking water risk across several vectors, surface those risks, and enable the water systems to generate 
um, response plans, resilience plans, adaptive resilience plans, and emergency response plans based on signal, not just anything that's happening, but based on the signals that can allow the technicians to address issues in real time and leaders to plan strategically for the long term. Um, we, we got to this by working with a, a few water systems across the country now and realizing that some of the, the struggle they have is not the availability of information, even though that's a problem. We realized quickly though, that it's making sense of the information to impact their decision-making and actions. Uh, so that's what we do. And um, some of this comes from my background. I um, I'm an assistance engineer and I worked at a power plant. This is the intersection on Lincoln. I worked at a power plant in, in London for um, about seven years, um, serving about half a million residents in the greater London area. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, um, where it was outage planning, uh, maintenance and replacement and management of plant assets, but also what was happening on the grid. And um, it was a great time. Uh, and it's sort of the same thinking that we're bringing into Varuna right now. What should I pay attention to, to make sure I can do the work that I've been charged to do to provide this critical resource for customers. So, yeah. Nice, nice. It seems like you have some really good lessons learned from one industry that you're really helping use in another industry. So I can't wait to talk about that in a minute. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that is very true. It's uh, their systems at the end of the day and uh, fundamental system concepts apply. Um, it's just customizing it for for water instead of power as we did before. Yeah. yeah, so I think it seems like water has really been in the news lately, probably rightfully so when it wasn't so much in the past. And there's, you know, a lot of hopefully not too, too much like fear mongering. I don't know. I, I, I want to hear from you guys, you know, kind of what what the real situation looks like or actually is, but I guess what would you say are some of the, the biggest challenges actually facing the industry? And Shay, maybe you can go first. Yeah, so um, the rightly so, it's in the news a lot more. The, the, the frankly frustrating part for me is that we haven't been paying as much attention as we should have, or maybe, we weren't making as much noise and in the industry as we should have. So um, the, I'll, I'll break it down very quickly. So there are sort of three components to, to the water industry. There's the product itself, the water that we drink, the service that is carried out by the operators, the engineers, technicians to get that water from that product from the source to our taps, uh, be it individual or businesses taking water from the taps. And then there are the assets, the infrastructure that is required to support the work, the service, to get the product, the water to, to um, the end user. They're sort of, each one of those three buckets has some like serious issues. In terms of the product, availability is a, is, a, is a problem. Availability, quality, and we have to address those, big issue. Um, in terms of the service, the people and the work they do, um, I, I, I use this, this phrase that we're fighting a new uh, battle with old weapons. That's sort of the service. There's still a lot of manual sample collection, driving around, not knowing what the problem is, hoping that you can figure it out inefficiently. And then on the asset side, the third bucket, old infrastructure. Some of, I was on a call with a, with a water system um, a leader and he showed me 
some of their pipes that they just removed that were made of wood in the early 1900s. They just removed them a few months ago. Yes. What? They're replacing them. So we have we have issues across those three buckets, and um, we haven't made as much noise. Thankfully, it's in the news now. But that's how I like to think about the industry and what is being addressed, what the problems are, and what is being addressed. And um, it's a good framing that I think anytime you think about the industry will help you figure out oh what where is this problem coming from, and is it one that we need a lot of money to solve or um, some money, but new technology. So um, I hope I hope that that helped a little bit, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Lincoln, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I'm, I'll, I'll bring a, maybe a slightly different view on the, on the same conclusions. And that is one of the things that we're, we figured out in California is that it's not just that we're fighting a new battle with old weapons, but we're fighting a battle that we now realize is much bigger than ourselves. And that is that we are in these multi-millennia, multi-century macro cycles of water supply and, and drought and abundance. And that here in California, human habitation and especially European colonization out here has really, and, and all the economic development has happened during the very wettest part of one of those macro cycles. So we have built our whole modern economy on, and society on, frankly, a kind of a peak assumption. Yeah. Which, yeah. Um, mother, mother nature, mother nature does not, uh, does not stay up there all the time. I mean, it's going to go back down. So I think we've got that. But the, the other part of it, you know, going to Shay's point about infrastructure, we're looking at, especially with water, we're talking about infrastructure that gets decided upon and invested in, in decades and sometimes in centuries, um, to the point about the, the wooden pipes, which doesn't... I, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. And one of the things I think that's coming out of that, we're seeing a lot of that aging out now. And one of the things that we're realizing, and Flint, Michigan is a perfect example of this, is how much, not just the investment, but also the maintenance over time has reflected both our priorities as a society, but also our prejudices mm -hmm. as a society. Mm -hmm. And so we're finding this in what should be an absolutely ubiquitous and equally pristine service and commodity, we're seeing a, a split. And that to me is just unconscionable in, in our world um, and especially in, in, in the United States. So I think there's, there's a lot of that going on in terms of those macro cycles, but at the same time, uh, to Shay's point, we are thinking about and talking about water. I think water has gone from something, a lot like electricity, has gone from something that simply shows up when you turn a valve or turn the tap or plug something into the wall for electricity and is now something that we actively think about and talk about. And hopefully that is the first step in finding effective, equitable solutions to what, um, you know, again, in, and maybe I'm being idealistic, but I feel like it should, these should just be ubiquitously pristine um, services that, that our citizens get. And it's just not the case. I, um, I, I totally agree about, it's become a trite statement to a certain extent, but it is the truth. Um, water is a right. Mm. And clean water is a right. And we've absolutely not set up our systems to to give people that right they 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 most definitely deserve to have i, I like i love how you frame it um lincoln yeah. i have kind of a follow-up question which um i think is maybe a, a challenge for the industry but also maybe an opportunity i guess i'd like to get both you guys' thoughts on it um is the changing workforce? Do you see newer people who are coming into 
this industry, thinking about it, thinking about these things the way you all are talking about now? Or is it more of a challenge because we're losing lots of institutional knowledge? Um, just what are your what are your thoughts on the the changing workforce in the industry? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question that depending on what time of day you ask me, I will have a different response. So the first response that came to mind though was this number, and I'm not sure, I think it was AWWA that might've done a survey. That's the Association for the Industry. I'm not sure where, where I, I read this, but the attrition rate in the industry of water operators, technicians is about 40%. And that some of that is due to retirement. Um, so, uh, COVID probably accelerated a little bit of this because the demands on some of the folk who were close to retirement made them decide, you know what? I want to go fishing with my grandkids. And this, this I don't want to do anymore. And it's a fair decision to take, to make. What is not lost on me is that like individual personal decision. But at the same time, so there's the industry is losing a lot of people, but there's a part of me sometimes that suggests that the rethinking of the industry that is required needs new people that don't have the baggage of the old. And baggage makes it sound bad, but sometimes you actually have useful things in the baggage that you carry. So it's... Um, but because I, and I say this sometimes in conversations and folk look at me and they're like, dude, you are on a, we, we, we need to fundamentally redesign even how homes are built to make sure it's not the same water we're using for flushing our toilets as we're drinking from our taps. Like, and I say that people in the industry who've been in the industry for a long time immediately go, that will cost a lot and it will be almost impossible. But new people will say, wow, if we say drought is a problem, maybe that is a good idea. You know, how do we reuse or recycle or source water from different places to cater to the different needs we have? So long response because I, I'm always swinging between it's a good thing, it's a great thing for the industry. Um, but yeah, it is a challenge as we as we design the future of this industry. Yeah. And I can I can certainly add I, I love the way Shay expresses that. I think we have to find that balance point between baggage and institutional knowledge. Uh, the other thing that we're finding where I live is in work is that we're, we don't have nearly the civil engineering, uh, rate of civil engineering graduates that we need. And even operators and, and, and the folks out in the field having a very, very difficult time in, in hiring them. I wonder if ultimately whether we misvalue engineering as a whole in this country, undervalue, engineering as a whole, but that's a whole different podcast probably. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, you know, when you think about that balance between baggage and, and institutional knowledge, the way, the way I think about this really across infrastructure and water is a great example. We have an incredible need to renew what's out there. So much of it, even especially the wooden pipes. Uh, is, is, is <laughs> that priority to, one. Yeah, it's priority one for the wooden pipe. Uh, <laughs> the asbestos pipes too. Uh, but, you know, there's so much out there that needs to be, that is, has reached its end of life maybe a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so we have this opportunity, at the same, we have an obligation to renew that, but we also have an opportunity. And that opportunity is to renew the water transporting functions of the infrastructure, but also to transform. So when you look at 
I think it's the American Society of Civil Engineers who consistently give American infrastructure like a C minus. That to me is a huge problem, but it's also a huge opportunity. How can we not just renew the infrastructure, but transform it given this, this kind of once in a century opportunity or once in a lifetime opportunity, how can we transform it in this new reality and in this new age of climate change and, 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 and drought and what have you? To your point about now's the time to look at that overdue infrastructure and say, you know what? We're gonna take the institutional knowledge that we need. We're gonna strip away the baggage that we don't and our transformational um, investment will be in different systems. Yes. You know, regular pipe and purple pipe as the new default. And so uh, to me, there's, you know, a lot of capital, a lot of capital. And, you know, as I mentioned, not nearly enough um, engineering horsepower, uh, I don't think, or, or expertise to actually, you know, get the work done and get it implemented. But there is an opportunity here. And how do we see the opportunity and seize the opportunity, which ultimately goes back to grabbing the institutional knowledge, revving that up with a bunch of new strategy, but not bringing the baggage along. Mm -hmm. So if, if I could write that equation on a whiteboard, I'd try. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, hopefully we can seize this opportunity to do things differently. Yeah. You know, if you could write that equation, You'd make you'd probably make a lot of money <laughs> by solving our water problems. <laughs> well, and and actually, Ricky, that 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 raises a great point. You know, it can you make a lot of money in water? And, and wow. what that yeah. Asks, yeah. what that you know what that that says to me is: Do we actually? It's not just do we undervalue engineering. I think we undervalue the heck out of water itself. Yes. Um, Amen. So, which, which is kind of the, the Godzilla in the room for this whole conversation. You know, you go over the, the, the Gulf, for example, and you're paying, I don't know, how many times more than, than I'm paying here in California. Um, mm -hmm. that, that might be closer to the real value of water going forward than, mm. than what we've been paying historically. It, it's, um, this actually uh, brings and brings in um the this whole conversation about the branding of water and i know that's not what we're talking about here but um i'm sure you've all heard of this co um, company called liquid death they sell water in cans yes i i went to acl this weekend this past and weekend and they, i found they, some exactly they are the official water provider for acl but what they've done is literally giving water a new name and they are charging you 300x or so what that same amount of water would cost coming from your tap probably closer to what you're talking about lincoln that they pay in some other parts of the world yeah. the true value and so there's as much engineering work and i totally agree about needing more like technical talent operators engineers uh, to come redesign the industry, but there's also the branding and the messaging and the communication of the value of water uh, that also needs a ton of work, mm -hmm. um, such that the only experience people have um, is in the extremes, you know? And that, because that brand's water, if they don't have it, they're upset. If they do, they ignore. That's sort of the, um, the exchange yeah. now when there's a lot more messaging that can happen in the middle there. Yeah. We need a marketing expert. That's, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, kind of throughout this conversation, one thing, one like theme that, you know, kind of is, really making itself known is that water accessibility issue. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that's probably the most talked about issue just amongst the general public, water accessibility, how do people get clean water? Why are some people getting it? Because you're right, ultimately at the end of the day, it is a fundamental right. It's something that literally we 
use every single day, multiple times a day. Um, and if you're not, I'm concerned. But, <laughs> but that being said, you know, we hear about water accessibility. So what, what are some things that y'all are maybe seeing being done in this area to address water accessibility or even better yet, like what's yet to be done? What's that missing piece? And Shay, let's, let's kick it off to you. Yeah, so um, th this is one of the, the difficulties that I have as a systems engineer. We talk about, there are three fundamental things. So to the end user, it's either about accessibility, affordability, or the safety of the water. And while we all, uh, we hear more about accessibility, in my mind, those three things are so connected that I struggle to, to separate whatever solutions we're, we're implementing for accessibility from affordability and safety. So um, my, my response will be incomplete because we have to address those three things. It's right. there are places where um, there are water systems that are doing the work. I think one of the headlines a few weeks ago was talking about how some water system, I think in California, I believe in California, is now um, including sewage as part of source water for treatment to increase the volume of source water that they're treating to make, to, to get to clean portable water. So, um, but in, in that conversation, people are like, I'm not about to drink water that's coming from. Yeah, from your house you or know? something, yeah. Because, like... because the, yeah, it might be available now and you're charging me less or, um, it's it's accessible because there's some more, but is it safe? And they immediately go, is it safe? And there's we we're right back at the okay now it's accessible, but people don't think it's safe. How do we address that? So incomplete response. There's a lot of good work being done recognizing the connectedness of those three. I heard about some in California last week. New Zealand as a country, I think, has an approach that both values water, but also recognizes the right and keeps a, the customer base informed of all the work that is going into making it clean and consequently why they charge as much as they do. And that's yeah. the yeah. Accessibility, affordability, safety, three main pillars. I like that. Lincoln, what about you? Yeah, I, I want to um, just a just a couple of points on top of that, uh, really building on that. I think one of the challenges with affordability is that given that water, you know, we do see water as a right and, and a requirement for humans to stay alive, um, any sort of price increase in water is going to be very regressive in the way that, say, uh, an increase in the price of electricity or gasoline or any sort of uh, life essential or lifestyle essential uh, product is, it's going to hit the, you know, a 5% increase is going to hit uh, the poor uh, much harder than it's going to hit the rich. Um, so we have to be very conscious of that. But I think there's also this, this safety issue and I guess I'm, I'm speaking in kind of American terms here, because yeah. obviously if you go elsewhere in the world, you have, you have very different issues, but that safety issue is, is really paramount. Shay, you've been working in this industry for at least a couple of years now, and you know, we've talked about some of the challenges, but do you have some success stories that you could share? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, I, 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 I won't name the cities, but I'll talk about some of the work we, we've done with them. Um, uh, one city up in the Northeast, and the, the, the problem was 
blind spots is how I'll, uh, how we frame it. Blind spots in both information from certain locations that they weren't getting before at the frequency that was required to inform decision-making, but also blind spots in what the data they were now getting, blind spot in what it was telling them. Like, okay, I have, I have data from six or seven different systems. What does it mean apart from the alerts that I'm getting? And so um, this specific example to highlight risk, we looking at chlorine residual numbers dropping, which indicates, oh, you're below the EPA recommended range. And consequently, you have the likelihood of organic um, contaminants in your water. Before the treatment, the response would have immediately been dose more chlorine just dump more chlorine gas, pump it, flush, waste all that. And with by helping them connect three or four data sources in our sort of hub, if you want to call it that, in our, da in our own dashboard, we could see it was pumping efficiencies, customer reduction in the usage of water in that part of town, consequently leading to stagnation and a drop in chlorine levels because there's a decay rate they should. And, but those correlations, again, it's always a system in our minds at Varuna, those correlations help them to realize, okay, the solution at this point is X, different from the traditional approach would have just been flushing water out for hours on end till the chlorine levels change. So it's, it's, and we've seen that across one of our customers in Texas, in the Northeast, but just what we bring them and what we love providing them is this more holistic view of the high priority risks to improve their decision-making because they know what work they're doing. They're, these people are skilled, hardworking, committed folk. What they were lacking was a little bit more depth in, in the um, analysis of the information that, that was popping up in front of them in real time now. Um, so yeah. yeah. You're definitely taking like the guessing work out of it for a lot of people. So that's really awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we had one customer who, to check if their pumps um, were struggling, the technician would drive to the location, touch the pump, and depending on how hot it was, he'd call back to the uh, to the plant and be like, yeah, it's the pump. They're like, what? What? This is the, the pump is warm. Fix it. <laughs> I burned, I burned my hand. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, the thing, the stories I can share, but yeah, yeah, it gets in better, obviously. Yeah, and I, I've I've seen that as well. I mean, back in in Burbank, California, where I used to be part of the utility there, uh, we took advantage of the ARRA, uh, American Recovery and Resilience, yeah. back after the, the recession. Yeah. And actually put in um, 100% or almost 100% uh, smart meters, both mm. on electricity and water. And mm. on electricity, that was a pretty straightforward decision. On water, it was pretty forward looking in that <clears throat> my impression is, and I, I don't have the data for this, but my impression is, that water, the water industry is a bit behind the electric industry in terms of generating data from their systems. That is true. And this, this, was, this became uh, a real plus for us because we were able to drive uh, leakage in the system down almost to zero. Mm. And even things like uh, leaks within houses um, or in irrigation systems, being able to pick those up before the homeowner or the, the business owner was able to and get those fixed. So I think, but, but I think that that really only scratches the surface because when you look at 
continuous monitoring, for example, for quality, you know, how many people are still going out there and dipping into the system and running that through, you know, sending that to a lab. I think the water industry is just starting that digitalization process. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the water picture going forward, which is very drought driven and very supply constrained, mm -hmm. being able to pull that next 1% of efficiency out of the system will be really, really valuable. And being able to avoid those flushing incidents, which are not only huge users of water, but also confuse the heck out of people. Yeah. Because they uh -huh. see, they say, here I am turning off my, my, my tap when I brush my teeth, and yet I see you dumping all this water. Well, we have to balance the chemistry and, and we haven't been using enough so that you know, the biologicals have built up and what have you. That's a very difficult thing to explain to people. And so I think if we can do more, and ultimately artificial intelligence, I think, around system operations driven yeah. by this real-time data, I think there's a tremendous leap we can make. My big concern, going back to mispricing water, my big concern is that the venture capital, the risk capital, the entrepreneurs will not be attracted to the sector because there isn't, they don't think there's money to be made because the commodity is underpriced. Yeah. Maybe that changes over time. And again, I get, you know, I, I realize I've, I've talked about it being regressive too. So I, <laughs> I, I realize the contradictions here, but the, uh, that to me is where a tremendous amount of opportunity is. The other big, big opportunity I think is in recycled water, which is kind of a very polite name for something Jay was talking about. <laughs> the, you know, when you look at that, and even with kind of current urban American anxiety about, you know, toilet to tap, so to speak, maybe you don't use it for the taps, but for potable water, but maybe you're using it with the purple pipe to flush your toilets. Maybe you can, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's very, very feasible to get that to a quality where it's probably drinkable, but it's certainly fine for irrigation. Yes. Um, uh -huh. And how do we build out that system? How do we invest when we have the street open? We put, not just put in the regular pipe, we also put in the purple pipe, even if it might sit there for a couple of years and we have that. So I think there's a, the, you know, again, it goes back to this kind of renewal and transformation mm -hmm. sort of thinking that the world needs to do. Um, because there, there is, this is, this is low hanging fruit, I think. It's not easy to pick because it's infrastructure and a lot of it's underground and the capital costs are very, very high, but it is low hanging fruit in terms of solving issues like supply and efficiency and, and uh, safety. Yeah. You know, and oddly infrastructure, you know, it might seem like, oh no, infrastructure is like the most important part there essentially yeah. is what we're hearing, right? Like we have to have the infrastructure in order to monitor it. And we have to have all of, we can't have this strong technology if we're not making that investment, like at the base level, essentially. Absolutely. And um, even the rethinking, I love how uh, Lincoln is, is framing it, the transformation of what that infrastructure looks like and how we think about it. Um, um, I, I grew up in, in, in Lagos, Nigeria, where you sort of had water coming from your tap as expected, but no one, for the most part, trusted that the government would provide water. And consequently, what people would do was have a tank at the top of their homes connected to a well they'd found someone to help them dig, and uh, sort of a mini filtration system and you were using rainwater for essentially storage and, and yeah. watering your, your, your plants or your garden. And it was this very individual home self-sustaining water cycle essentially that was out of necessity. And depending on how wealthy you were, 
it determined the size of your tank and the quality of the filtration system you put in place. But at the most basic level, people solve that problem for themselves. And I'm not saying we should go to that, but having, having seen that as a possibility out of necessity, it makes me constantly also question this when we talk about infrastructure, we're immediately going to large scale expenditure, large scale infrastructure. Maybe they're micro grids, uh, as is on the power side, micro water systems that we can build in to, to avoid spending so much but transforming the industry. And it's, yeah. it's this sort of thinking that um, I, I, I so love the word transform, Lincoln. I, like, it's almost as if I hadn't heard it before, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, such a good, it's a good one for how to rethink the, the water space. Thank you for that, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fascinated. It, as you were talking through that, that word microgrid came immediately to mind. And I'm thinking of, of what I've seen in, in less developed countries all over the world in different climates uh, with the rain barrels with the, the filtration systems. And it, I honestly don't know much about it, but I'm really curious, is that, I wonder where the break point is between mm -hmm. the utility scale system and the, the building or home scale system. I mean, I think about, I think about the equation on the electric side and, and solar rooftop solar is still uh, a number of times more expensive than utility scale solar. And of course, you also need batteries. You don't have the grid, basically, if you try to island yourself off. So you're losing a lot of, of reliability and resilience as a function <clears throat> of the unique characteristics of electricity, which water doesn't have. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, I, this, is, this is really thought provoking because I wonder if there is a way to think about this as not just a, a utility scale infrastructure decision, but as a very thoughtful trade-off between the micro and the macro. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate that. I, I really never thought about that before. Thank you. Transforming um, water systems, look at us. <laughs> and you've got, see, and you've even got Lincoln going. It's the educator in him. Now he has lots of ideas. <laughs> We have about we have about two more questions left, really kind of expanding upon this conversation a little bit. Uh, so we have about two more questions left. Erin, why don't you kick us off with our last two? Yeah, so we think about these things a lot because we're in the industry and we like having these conversations. But what, what would you all say to someone who's maybe just casually listening, isn't part of the industry, isn't constantly thinking about these systems, like you, like you call them, Shay, and uh, what advice would you give to them for, you know, helping with the future state of water? Value water is sort of the, is the um, I think it's, it's, it, and valuing water means expanding your willingness to, if you can, um, contribute to the greater goal of both reducing our usage, but also making it more accessible for other people who can't afford it and recognizing that there's, I always hear this thing, I would hear it on the power side as well towards the, that, oh, my individual usage doesn't do so much. It's not, my, and and mm -hmm. that is the wrong way of thinking about, about this. Yes, industry and agriculture use more water than the average, than, than, than individuals. But um, as Lincoln mentioned before, a 1% sort of shift in efficiency, in reduction, in any of the metrics that we're caring about as it relates to water will make a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
Yeah. You don't even have to understand it fully. You understand how the water cycle works. Most of us do. That's the system mm -hmm. you should be concerned about, not the pipes and the, and that yeah. should make you take some action. Yeah. 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 And I, I think it, taking that from a slightly different angle, I think um, in the case of, of anything like this, but I think water in particular, a little bit of good education goes so such a long way. Um, there, there are, uh, <clears throat> I'm a, I'm a reader, so I'm going to recommend Cadillac Desert as uh, kind of the classic of the genre. But also, you know, as my, as my kids always tell me, Dad, you can learn literally anything on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> literally uh, anything. Lincoln. Literally you anything. They, stand. <laughs> they, they call it YouTube University. Uh, yeah. But I think you know a little bit of education and starting with the water cycle, which frankly a lot of us, you know, most of us learned in in, in grade school and have, have since have since kind of put out of our minds. Mm -hmm. But then understanding how the system came to be. And it's an incredible story. No matter where you are in the world, it is a combination of Indiana Jones and um, uh, and and the world's greatest Lego set. You know, it's it's a great it's a great narrative. But to understand how we got to where we are and how people have interacted with water over, you know, through human history will really help frame it. And I think give people an opportunity to make really, to, to Shay's point, make really conscious decisions about water use and about what investing in water and how we, how we build the system of the future. Um, and, you know, again, it helps that it's, it's just, it is a swashbuckling story, no matter, you know, whose, whose water story you're, you're learning about. It is, uh, there are, it, it's it's all it it's it's Hollywood movie ready. <laughs> oh, I love that swashbuckling. I'm, yes. That's a fun word. I'm excited. I'm going to use that every day this week. There you go. There you go. That's our challenge. And Aaron, we have a new book to read: Cadillac Desert. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're adding it to our book club list. So kind of so kind of rounding out um, the podcast. Every time we have a we have guests on the podcast, we ask them a very important question, uh, and it's what does the word energy mean to you? However, this is a special episode, so I have a very special question, which in reality, it's not really changed much. So when I say the word water, what does the word water mean to you? Lincoln, let's go to you first. Um, this is uh, what you're if you're li just listening to this, what, I, what you're seeing on the video is a deer in the headlights look. Uh, for me. <laughs> um, that is a, in a, that's a loaded a, question. It's a very loaded question. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, it, it comes back to this, this realization that the, the one thing on the planet that we cannot live without is water. And so if anything, if anything is a human right, water is a human right and safe, clean, affordable, adequate water supply. Um, I think I may be an optimist in this regard, but I think if we can start from there, um, a lot of the decisions, uh, a lot of the politics goes out of it. If we start with that policy, a lot of, we can take a lot of the politics out of it. That's my hope anyway. Um, but I think, yeah. you know, when you really look at it, if we can see it as a right, which I firmly believe it is, then the, the policy decisions, the investment decisions, uh, the operational decisions flow from that. Nice, nice. I, I could not agree more. I'll, I'll say, agreeing with, with Lincoln, um, that water is life. And because the, the, the presence of it, as Lincoln said, affordable, safe, um, accessible, ensures life. And the absence of it is the absence of life, literally. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame now because we were now at a point in, in human history where we're experiencing water more 
as disaster than than life because we talk about people experience water through floods drought it's the absence of too much of or um polluted quantity of it's kind of and it it that saddens me and i guess it's it's also it's also motivation for why i do the work i do every day um uh, but I, i hold on to that water is life and um, I hope we all recognize that because if we agree on that, decisions from flowing from that as the center of how we think about it, no pun intended, I just realized flowing. That's really good. Uh, <laughs> yes, helps, of course. Yeah. Um, make the right decisions to, to give people life, honestly. Yeah. And it's like I need to make a shirts that say, transforming water on the front and then like on the back is water equals life (laughs) and then all four of us are going to wear them together the the merchandising opportunities are huge (laughs) well we well yeah i mean we talked about rebranding water a few minutes ago so you know it all falls in line it does Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much, Aaron, for also joining us today. Do you have any last closing thoughts for our, our two amazing guests today on the grid with us? Just that it's always so much fun talking to both of you and you always leave me thinking about things in a different way than I was before. So I really appreciate that. Honestly, yeah. Like I had thoughts on where our conversations were gonna go today, but they did not ever get to this point. And now I'm really left with, a lot of ways for us to really enable a better water future. Sorry, to transform our water (laughs) future. Thanks for for inviting me, having me on. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, so thank you to our listeners for listening this with us this afternoon. Uh, Until next time, thanks again. Thanks for being on the grid with us. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us today and you for listening along. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in joining us on the grid, email us at info at For updates, please be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at zprime and on Twitter at zprime underscore research. This episode was produced by Ricky Murray and edited by Aria Levanti. Cover art is designed by Mia Dance.